Several professional football players have made national headlines recently for instances of domestic violence, and the state has been in the midst of a debate about whether to cut domestic violence prevention funding. Earlier this week, the Indiana Criminal Justice Institute announced it would not do so, but the controversy has still sparked concerns about the state's priorities. This week on Noon Edition, we'll speak with guests about the instances of domestic violence and how the state is trying to combat the issue. Join the conversation after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. The issue of domestic violence has jumped into the headlines recently because of assaults involving professional football players. On our show today, we will talk about domestic violence and the efforts to address the problem. Our guests are Toby Strout, who's been here with us uh, several times before. Toby is executive director of Middleway House in Bloomington. And Linda Robbins, who's also a return guest. Linda is the Monroe County clerk and a de domestic violence survivor. You can join the discussion by calling 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. Or you can join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So welcome back to both Thank of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for being here. So, um, Toby, I know we had a story, you know, in our paper recently uh, quoting you about, uh, you know, the recent, all the recent mm, news coverage, I guess, of this issue, which, of course, has been around for forever. Um, and you talked about how, you know, you've, you've sort of seen this before. Well, yes. Actually, oddly enough, and this always surprises people, at 9-11, you had people watching television and watching all day long and over and over and over seeing those planes hit those buildings and the interviews with people on the street who were terribly stressed out. And if you're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, it doesn't have to be connected to what led to your PTSD. Mm -hmm. uh, it just has to be some heightened emotion, something that gets you really upset. And then you start with the flashbacks and the memories that won't stop, the images that mm -hmm. you know flash across your mind. So um, certainly it would be expected then that if you're watching a video of somebody knocking someone unconscious, over and over and over again, mm -hmm. you're going to have that same response. So the calls came from people suffering from PTSD, and they also came from people who were concerned about other people. There was an awful lot of that, you know, questions about our services and what could be done for someone. Mm -hmm. Now, Linda, mm -hmm. you, you know, you've been following this issue, obviously. I mean, what effect did this have on you when you saw it? Did you see the video? I saw the video. Um, I was... 
I would say the PTSD was probably a very good description of that. You go back to reliving some of those um, times, and um, you can't help but put yourself in the position of the woman who has been there And in two respects. One is there are people who um, say, why did she go ahead and marry him, and she must have done these things. And so there's a victimizing of victims and and some support of the person who's doing the victimizing so uh brings back a lot of a lot of emotion from back that time now, Toby, we we need to let you go ahead and address that right out of the gate the why would she go ahead and marry him question oh yes and of course you know women stay in abusive relationships for a million reasons and a lot of them actually quite good um, the overwhelming majority of women who die in the context of domestic violence die leaving not staying. It's the most dangerous decision they can make. Um, Most of the calls that come into police about assaults come from women who have left the relationship, but abusers are stalkers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so those things have to be kept in mind. Um, If you're not anybody who's ever earned a living, um, that can be a terrifying situation. Mm -hmm. You want to Mm -hmm. actually protect your children from publicity, you know, and and for them growing up with this notion that their daddy's a bad man. Mm -hmm. There are so many reasons to stay in an abusive relationship. And yet, you know, that's from the victim side. Mm -hmm. You know, from the perpetrator side, it's just all about power and control. There's one. Mm-hmm. You know, there's one reason, mm-hmm. and it's a bad one. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we, we haven't really mentioned exactly you know, what case we're talking about. I'm sure most of our listeners know, but this you know, involves Ray Rice, a, a, very, a very well-known NFL football player. And, you know, he, 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 a video surfaced that where he had basically punched and knocked out his fiancée then, who's now his wife. Her name is Janae. Um, and... She said she actually made some comments about how well she was as much at fault or she was at fault, too. And, you know, again, Linda, can you address that? I can, um, because abuse doesn't happen overnight. It all happens over a period of time. And it's a series of breakdown of your own um, self-worth that gets you to a point where you're dependent on that individual for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um And over a period of time, you really do believe that if you can do better, he won't do those things. If you can um, uh, get a better job and bring more money home so that there aren't financial problems, he won't be that way. Um, It's just, it's an amazing amount of of, uh, psychology that goes there when you become a, a victim of domestic violence and uh you actually go through it and not don't even realize what is happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let me give our phone numbers again, and then we're going to be joined by Brandon Smith, the Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter. Uh, the numbers are eight five five zero eight one one or one eight seven seven one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So while all this has been going on, there's been a, a controversy, or at least some, some, a lot of news has been breaking about how the state was going to cut funding for dom- domestic violence issues. And then uh, apparently they are not, but there's some questions about that. I know Toby's got some concerns about what's happening now. But Brandon, if, uh, if you're there, could you sort of uh, give us the, the short take on what happened and what's been going on? 
Well, the short take is a difficult one to give just because this is such a complicated issue, but essentially it boils down to this. Last year, uh, the, the General Assembly passed a two-year budget, so last year was the first year of that budget, and they appropriated a certain amount of money for domestic violence prevention. Uh, the Indiana Criminal Justice Institute, which is the state agency responsible for distributing those funds, did not distribute all of the money they were given for two reasons. One, they accidentally sent back some of the money to the general fund in what are called reversions. Reversions happen in every state agency every single year, but the domestic violence money isn't supposed to be reverted, and it was mistakenly put into the wrong pot, if you will, and sent back. So that was about $344,000. There was also uh, more than $400,000 that was essentially left sitting in the fund and not distributed to, to shelters because, as the, the Criminal Justice Institute said, they simply didn't have requests for the money, which shelters scoff at pretty hard because they ask for more money than they get every single year and so don't understand why they didn't get all of the money. Well, certainly not all of the money they asked for, but at least all of the money that CJI could provide. Now, what happened in the last week or so is that CJI um, gave out the money for this year, as well as the money that they had essentially held back last year. So all of the money that was appropriated for domestic violence prevention uh, funding has now been sent out, or is about to be sent out. Okay. So I'm going to ask Toby Strout from Middleway for uh, her reaction to how all this has gone on. Yes. Uh, I think that, first of all, following the money is so complicated and so difficult. But this is not an isolated incident. And so they're talking about two years. Okay, good. So they put the money back. But um, they've all, they also capped the amount of money we could have in years past. So we weren't allowed to ask for more than they told us to ask for. So then to say we didn't ask for enough to use up the fund is, you know, it's a little odd um, at the very least. But what they've done now with the additional money is that they're not giving us more money to do the basic and emergency work that we have to do. They're giving us money to do something else. So this is a brand new initiative that comes from them. So they're giving us money for prevention work. So I could really use that money for that 24-hour, 365-day-a-year stuff that we do. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, Brandon, so from, from you know, your, your perspective reporting on this, I mean, has that been clear to you? Do you think legislators understand that? I think there's a lot that legislators don't understand. There, there is a lot that it, it, it may come down to just a simple miscommunication problem, but even talking with the Criminal Justice Institute folks, speaking with the shelters, there is, there is very little clear communication going on in any direction about what the CJI needs from shelters in order to disperse the money, uh, what exactly the money is used for. It, it, it's a very unnecessarily complicated situation. Mm-hmm. Now, do, do you think... Oh, go ahead, Mary Kath. Okay. Do you, do you think, uh, Brandon, what's going to happen, uh, you know, when the legislature goes back into session now? Are there going to be, you know, is this issue going to be more top of mind? I think so because of all the attention that, that the funding issue has gotten in the last couple of weeks. I, I have trouble seeing that fade, especially because it's not isolated to Indiana or, or the Criminal Justice Institute, as you've already t- been talking about today. The issue is, is 
come to the national forefront in a lot of ways, and I don't see that fading before January in the, in the legislative session since we're writing a new budget uh, here at the State House. So my guess is that it will get a lot more attention this year than it has gotten in past years, and that, one would assume, can only be a good thing for the shelters out there. Mm-hmm. Tell me, what kind of opportunities do people who do the kind of work that you do have to interact and influence legislators and um, the CJI? Um, there are all kinds of rules about influencing legislation that we have to follow because we're a 501c3. So the safest route that we can take is if somebody invites us to basically provide education. Mm-hmm. And I have done that. Vi Simpson used to mm-hmm. invite me up all the time, mm-hmm. and I would you know, talk to summer study committees or you know, that, that kind of thing to uh, small groups of legislators who are crafting legislation. Um, I haven't been asked to do that in a while, but I don't know whether anything new is happening mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Because we also have a state organization, and the state organization is supposed to be our lobbying arm. Mm-hmm. So and there's what's less the name of that? call for us, the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Okay, sure. And they led this protest about the funding, mm-hmm. you know, this time. Good. So. Okay. All right, our phone numbers again, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So, so Brandon, you know, from uh, you know, sitting here in Bloomington and probably people sitting around the state that haven't been you know, as involved in this as you have, I mean, it just it seems kind of... Well, frankly, it just seems like a real bad, you know, shot in the foot by the state to think that there would be anything coming up that would cut funding to domestic violence programs and victims at this point, particularly with what's going on. Do you think that it just was going to sail through in this way until all this, you know, publicity sort of hit the airwaves? That's an interesting question. There's a, there's a real chance that eventually the money would all have gone out but it wouldn't happen in the uh, shorter time period, in the expedited time period that it is now happening. That all of the negative attention that the Criminal Justice Institute and the governor's office received in the last couple of weeks surrounding this issue has really kind of spurred them to action to, to shorten the timeline and to really kind of rush that money out to the shelters that need it. Mm-hmm. But uh, do I understand correctly that this is money that is, in fact, restricted? It's to be used strictly for prevention programs. So for Toby and other people in her position to keep the doors open, um, it's it's really not to be used for operating funds necessarily. Is that correct? I, I have never gotten that impression. It, my understanding of it is going into the, the domestic violence treatment and prevention fund so I don't know for sure that it's being restricted to solely prevention. It's not to say that that's not true. That's just not been my impression. But as I've said uh, all along here, the communication uh, issue is a major one. So it's very possible that it is being restricted and that some of us don't know that. Okay, Toby? It is being restricted. And uh, just to make sure, we called ICJI today to speak to our program officer and ask that question. Mm -hmm. We said, you know, we really could use the money for covering shelter work and crisis Mm -hmm. intervention and supportive services. Uh, Do we have to write it for prevention? And she said, 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, so you have to basically um, prove that you're going to use the, any money that comes to you from the state for a new program rather than for supporting the mission that you already have. Right. But it's you actually, have existing prevention yeah. programs. It's actually going to be an extension of a program that we have. So that we can do as well. So mm-hmm. we're talking about an additional staff member because we provide 299 separate sessions of building healthy relationships, and we have requests for more, and we can't fill them. So, you know, it's very nice to be able to fill them. We think it's a wonderful program, and Mm -hmm. we have demonstrated because we are actually pretty data-focused. We look at outcomes. Mm -hmm. We've demonstrated that if we do this program in the seventh grade, all those gains in knowledge and changes in attitude actually carry over. So when they're in the 10th grade and they fill out that pretest, they're doing much better mm-hmm. than the ones mm-hmm. who didn't have the program. So we're able to show that. Um, and, I, and I'm happy to build that program. I'm just not sure I consider that domestic violence. Well, it is, let's say, prevention and treatment, but they've mm-hmm. never asked us to do prevention before. So maybe they feel this isn't new, but frankly, it's completely new when it comes to the proposal that we're writing. Mm-hmm. Linda, what's your reaction? Uh, I think that they, this is, you know, they have the state criminal system uh, legislation last time has put so much more back at the local level for um, treatment of any criminals and, and recidivism rates. And, and domestic violence primarily is once you have domestic violence, that person's going to go back and, and, com- and do and, uh, do domestic violence again. I mean, it is not just a one-time thing. Mm-hmm. And and I think that this is probably maybe maybe their push to go back and say, well, now you got to treat treat the the person rather than the victim and they are taking away from the victims and the help that they receive. And and uh, you know, this is messed up. Mm-hmm. You got people beating people and people who are are accepting being beaten and who ask for help and are continued to be victimized by the people they are asking and I think Mm. that I think the um, I think it's a a crime essentially to take that money away from a from a a middle way house or a, a situation like that and have them um make their resources towards you know, and, and, and lose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have another question about the money. Just adding up the the, the numbers that Brandon um, put forth, that comes to about, what, $744,000 to go across a whole state. What? How much money is um, uh, identified? Uh, how much money do you, for example, Toby, uh, can you, do you know off the top of your head like how much you get from the state annually, how much you are supposed to get from the state annually? No, I can tell you what our DVPT award is, what it has been. DVPT stands for? I'm sorry, (laughs) Domestic Violence Prevention and Treatment. Even I can get my tongue tripping over those things. Um, We serve um, six counties in south-central Indiana, and so our award reflects that. Mm -hmm. And so that's $100,000 a year, Um, you know, in a budget that is $1.7 million. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's what we get, and there are other programs that get that much as well, and some programs that get less. 
Okay. And you, your programs really focus on the victim. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we don't do any work with perpetrators at all. I actually consider that a conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Brandon, we're getting close to our break time. I don't know if you're sticking around after the break or not, but um, I just wanted to to sort of ask you the the question. I mean, I asked you this question before. I want to ask it in a little bit different way. I mean, have you seen legislation come through in previous sessions, or do you know of any particular legislators that might have ideas along the lines of domestic violence uh, prevention and treatment other than strictly just funding mechanisms? Off the top of my head, and this is going back four or five sessions that I've been covering uh, here at the Indiana State House. Off the top of my head, I can't think of anything uh, targeted at domestic violence prevention and training. It's generally handled through the budget. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, obviously anything would have to have a price tag attached to it. I was, I was really thinking in terms of, you know, Toby's talking about the programs that Middleway does in middle schools and things like that. And, you know, this is, uh, I think... You know, I think the word epidemic with this, with domestic violence, probably isn't too far off. And I, so I was sort of thinking in terms of whether you'd heard anything about, you know, mandated programs in schools or at least suggested programs in schools. I haven't heard anything about that. But again, I think in that last uh, three or four or five years, we haven't seen the kind of uh, intense national focus on this issue that we obviously should have seen, but we haven't seen that kind of focus on the issue uh, up till now. So it's real possible that we might see those sort of things this coming session that starts in January. Mm-hmm. Toby, have you heard any any talk about that? Um, I haven't heard of anything new, but the state of Indiana, they didn't exactly pass legislation. It's um, voluntary. But all school systems in the state are supposed to be offering prevention programs. And either the time passed or it's coming up when the school systems should be telling the Department of Education what it is that they're doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Department of Education itself is working with um, the state organizations to come up with some guidelines. Mm -hmm. So the programs that you do, uh, you go in the schools and do those. So you said you do... 299 education programs a year? That's what we did in the 7th and 10th grade. 7th and 10th grade. Yeah, and I think it's actually a good idea to have people come in from the outside, to tell you the truth, Mm -hmm. for these programs. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't necessarily want to talk to your teacher who you're going to see tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow Mm -hmm. and tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Right. You know, about this stuff. And we get a lot of disclosures when we go into the schools. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. I'm sure. Is is that, I mean, those age groups, is that, uh, you know, a lot of times prevention programs have to start with kids that are even younger than that. Do you think that's those are the right ages? Um, you know, it's kind of strange, but even in the seventh grade, sometimes you encounter kids who are looking at you. They know dogs look at you when you talk to them because they don't know what you're talking about. Right. <laughs> so, you know, the seventh grade is a very funny time, right? Yeah, you know, right. I mean, you have kids who are really children, and then you have kids who are not so mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. children. But I agree that programs should start very early on. They just would not be the same program that we're doing. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to get into elementary schools. You know, parents are, of course, very protective of their children, and they want to be sure you're not putting ideas in their heads and Mm -hmm. scaring Mm -hmm. them. But there are ways to do those programs. And actually, interestingly, we've done them in Owen County. Mm -hmm. All right. We're going to slide in a phone call before we go to our break. So Sarah from Bloomington is on the line. Sarah? I, I heard someone talking about epidemic, and that sounds like something that's suddenly happening. It doesn't seem to me to, that domestic violence is all that new. 
Yeah, well, I think that's a good point. I, I don't think I meant it in the sense that it's new. It's just it's so widespread. But is it is it epidemic worse than it's been in the past, or is it just that we're finally finding out more? Mm-hmm. Let's ask uh, Toby and Linda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, way back when, C. Everett Koop, the Surgeon General of the United States, um, referred to violence against women as an epidemic in this country. So, yeah, the term has been used, and it was a wonderful thing that he did it because it actually lined up the medical community mm-hmm. um, so that they started looking at it, and that's helped a great deal. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, since VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act, was passed, it's about 20 years ago, well, it is 20 years ago, Reports of domestic violence have been reduced by 60%. Um, It's an interesting thing because our numbers only go up. So Mm -hmm. what you have to look at is what are they counting exactly, and I think it's jurisdictional reports. And, you know, for example, in our community, we get together once a month. Everybody talks about their statistics. Middle White Houses are always much, much, much higher than everybody else's, partly because a lot of people don't want what's happening to them to be public. Mm -hmm. So they come to us instead of the police. Mm -hmm. And partly because our definition of domestic violence extends beyond that which is expressly illegal. Mm -hmm. There are many, many ways to destroy a life. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily involve a physical assault. Mm -hmm. Sarah, is that good? Thank you. All right, thanks a lot for the call. All right, we're talking about uh, issues involving domestic violence on Noon Edition today. I want to thank Brandon Smith for being here with us. Brandon, thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, thanks a lot. Uh, Brandon is the Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter. Uh, we also have Toby Strout and Linda Robbins here with us. They'll be back with us after the break. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington. Online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiu.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIU.org news. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And we are talking about the issue of domestic violence today, which has really jumped into the headlines, even though it's been with us for many, many, many years. Um, But it's jumped into the headlines because of the assaults involving some players in the NFL. Um, On our show today, we have Toby Stroud, Executive Director of Middleway House in Bloomington, and Linda Robbins, the Monroe County Clerk, and she's also a domestic violence survivor. So you can 
join the discussion by calling us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. And I have to say that I, I remember some of the most um, interesting calls and interesting in the way of emotional and really compelling have come when Toby's been here from True. people who True. have stories to tell or have issues that they want to talk about so i want to talk about the nfl you know this national football league it's uh you know it's supposed to be america's game now and all this and and now i mean it's not just ray rice there's a guy named greg hardy from the carolina panthers it's another guy named ray mcdonald from the san francisco 49ers those guys have been either convicted or arrested you know within the same time period of ray rice's video leaking and you know that's just the tip of the iceberg so i'd like to talk to michael vick's wife too while we're at it <laughs> yeah, all right so <laughs> You know, from both of your perspectives, I mean, Toby, I'm sure you've been following very, very closely. What, what was the the uh, NFL's reaction to all this? And, you know, what would you say if we had R- Roger Goodell here in the studio? The oh. <laughs> Roger Goodell. <laughs> Lord. Um, you know, unfortunately, he behaved no different from the way sports directors would I don't even know what he's called, commissioners, uh, have behaved for a very, very long time. You know, I haven't seen a recent study, but I remember looking at a study just of college athletes, male college athletes, which at that time represented 3% of the student body across Mm -hmm. the nation, but 17% of the sexual assault perpetrations. Mm -hmm. So... um, there, you know, there's something to look at. So it's coming out of that sports culture, that gladiator mm-hmm. building culture. And I think that by the time you also get into professional sports, there's all this entitlement. Mm-hmm. You know, and domestic violence has really been largely about that notion of male privilege and entitlement. And so here you are in a hyper masculine world. It's not surprising that it would go on. It's just disappointing that it hasn't been addressed. So do you feel that um, the commissioner would not have, would have stuck with the original basically slap on the wrist if it hadn't been for the public reaction to that? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think so. Yeah. 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 Um, And then also, I mean, we we were talking about this briefly, but the... um, you know, the reaction there, a lot of people have sort of defended Ray Rice. And, and I remember reading one quote that people who know me know this isn't this isn't who I am. You know, that's what he says in a quote. Um, Linda, your reaction to that? Well, I, I smiled. Um, he Obviously, he is, or he wouldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. And some of the nicest people I know are also perpetrators of domestic violence. And, and that's one of the things that makes it so difficult for women to come forward and admit or seek help is because they don't think anybody's going to believe them. These guys are so great. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and plus the stigma that goes with that. Uh, it's just like the NFL has, made, had, has in the past made so light of it. Mm-hmm. It's not. There has been no um, no stigma or social stigma to it, and and uh, but there has been to the women. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, mm-hmm. they have been vilified. Mm-hmm. 
Right. There's a lot of upset about uh, Ray Rice not being able to fulfill his contract and, and play and then continue to earn the kind of money that uh, he was earning, which was phenomenal. And, and if she hadn't done what she had done, I mean, there was so much there was so much uh, discussion as to whether she deserved it or she provoked it. And it never should come down to a a punch like he did. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's sort of hard to believe we're still talking about she deserved it or provoked yeah, it. Yeah, that's but. just that blows my mind. Yeah, we have a phone call from I'll, I'll let you Toby. I'll let you respond to that after the phone call. But we have uh, Susan from Kokomo who's on the line. Susan, I um, I had something else that I was calling about, but I do want to address the she provoked it or she brought it on. Um, I happen to work as a facilitator with a a self-sustained men's and women's nonviolence education program, and that question has been fodder for quite a bit of discussion, and many of the perpetrators have said, well, you know, she, uh, she probably said something, to which my comment was, tell me what it is she could have said or done that would warrant being knocked out cold. So... Uh, you know, there, but, but lots of people have suggested that, again, you know, it's the, the fault of the victim. But earlier in the show, uh, someone mentioned that uh, by helping perpetrators were somehow, maybe I misunderstood, and I, I apologize if that's the case, but uh, that by helping the perpetrators were somehow taking away from victims. And I would just like to say that there are models out there where, in the case of the program I work with in Howard County, it is self-sustaining. It takes nothing away from victims from a financial standpoint. And on the contrary, I think that nothing is ever going to change if we don't uh, address the problems of the perpetrators. We, we have to do that. And uh, in my experience, I've been doing this program for seven or eight years now, and many, many, many of the people who've come through the program, first of all, come back voluntarily uh, from time to time and have said that it has changed lives. It has changed their family uh, dynamics. It, it has brought an awareness they never had before. And they, interestingly, have made the remark that they wish that they had learned this kind of thing in school. So I really applaud what's being done with those programs, and I think we'll see a big change. All right, Susan. Thank you. And uh, to- I know Toby mentioned before that that uh, you know her middleway doesn't work with perpetrators, and that in fact it would be a conflict of interest. And I can't remember what else was said along those lines. That's, but... That was that was me. This oh, is yeah. Linda, and mm-hmm. and uh, the fact that they are taking money away from Middleway House in order to to do this other program and put that back on a local basis. These are monies that Middleway has has depended on, on for a period of time, and and um, it it does put a dent in what their services are. Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps they'd like to. I mean, I would would welcome them to to look at the the Howard County model and and to see that it is it is self sustaining. The perpetrators have to pay uh, for their uh, two hour sessions and. Uh, and and Howard County also has through Family Services Association a uh, domestic violence shelter that is uh, there's nothing being taken away from the shelter funds to fund the perpetrator program. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask uh, Toby. So it sounds like you know when when somebody is picked up 
for a drunk driving charge, they have to go to an alcohol school. Is there a is there any kind of program that a person who's charged with domestic violence has to go through? It depends. Mm-hmm. It depends upon your jurisdiction. I mean, obviously, there's a program in Howard County, and so I would imagine that that program is a referral that will happen at some point during the life cycle of a case. And we have a program, actually, that comes down from Greenwood in our county. And that's a very common thing to happen, um, you know, at when it comes to disposition of a case, um, everything's suspended for time served, but you have to go to this program. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, most of the programs charge so that people can attend them. Mm-hmm. And so far, there's mostly talk about taking money from victim services and putting them into perpetrator services. I don't know that I don't know that that has happened, but it's something that we watch um, mm-hmm. very carefully. Uh, we are very much in favor of programs, despite the fact that most of the research isn't very compelling with mm-hmm. respect to outcomes. We're we're in favor of them because. That's what we would like to see. We would like to see perpetrators change. And so would their victims. Mm -hmm. And so victims tend to be very in favor of these programs and very hopeful about them. Mm -hmm. You know, alas, there's a bunch of research that says, well, actually, those programs end up putting women in greater danger because they assume more from them than they deliver. That doesn't mean there aren't wonderful programs out there that are working. Mm -hmm. Susan, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, um, I I think you're correct. We get referrals from um, our court system, and I think there's some screening done there. We uh, don't uh, tend to get any perpetrators who uh, have used weapons, you know, serious, um, I mean, everything's serious, but uh, the really violent crimes that, uh, and we try to do, and we're talking about doing more of the lethality assessment kind of thing, so I think many of the people we get are indeed, I mean, they, they're classified as having uh, committed acts of domestic violence, but the lethality level overall is is less. They are all um, uh, under a, a no-contact order, which, of course, we know is as, as good as the piece of paper it's written on, but... Uh, I think having the backup of the program stressing that there is to be no contact and, and it's a weekly program and uh, th- so that there is some oversight while the victims are also uh, receiving services. So, you know, it, it, I mean, so far I don't know that, uh, I mean, we don't have any tragedies, though I have heard elsewhere that there have been people who have been in diversionary programs who have, have you know, reoffended with uh, horrible results. All right, Susan. Hey, we really appreciate your call. Always nice to hear from you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Love your program. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye. All right. We have another caller, and it's Randy in Bloomfield. Hi, Bob. Hey, Randy. How you doing? Doing fine. Hi, Mary. Hi, Randy. (laughs) I just wanted to offer a little input here, if I I may. Sure. Uh, I understand that domestic violence affects both men and women alike. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I have actually been through that, so it doesn't discriminate. Um, the thing I, I, I would really hate to see cutting the, the finances to these, these shelters that help people out. 
because if if you have nowhere else to turn to, if you have no friend or a relative that you can tell mm-hmm. what you what you're going through, mm-hmm. because well, heaven forbid, if something happens, you turn up dead. Someone's going to have to be able to say there was a problem somewhere along the way. You know, it, it's nice to have somebody that you can you can tell that you were going through a situation in case something bad would happen. Mm-hmm. But uh, the one thing that I was really hoping the, the money would go to benefit if we can keep the funding going is uh, a defensive tactics training for people who are victims. And that way, if you cannot defuse the situation, if you're in a, a, a relationship that's volatile or abusive, if you can't defuse the situation, then you should at least be able to know how to defend yourself. And I would like to see a defensive tactics training in these shelters where people turn to for help so that, you know, you would actually be able to defend yourself. And, uh, you know, if it does get physically violent, I would just like to know what your your take is on that. I know you'd have to pay somebody to come in there and probably uh, teach a little bit of, you know, martial arts or what have you. But that's a good channel to go for people who really can't afford to go take professional training. But if that was offered in these shelters, you know, for someone who's being beaten up and, you know, if, if there was just a way to show people how to defend themselves so that you're no longer the victim, you're actually coming out victorious. Well, let's get and, Toby's reaction to that proposal. Thank you. Thanks, mm-hmm. Randy. Actually, we have offered self-defense training in our shelter, and we offer it whenever somebody um, offers it to us. So if somebody comes in and has that ability and we can do a screening of that person and make sure they understand the situation, we will make it available to people in our shelter. We had an interesting job interview the other day with a woman who teaches self-defense, and just kind of checking her out, Mm -hmm. we asked her whether she thinks that victims or you know, vulnerable people should have this kind of training to protect themselves. Is that what she would recommend? And she said, oh, no. And we asked why not. She said, well, when there's a struggle, there's a winner. And there's no way to know that you're going to be the winner. And when you think about relationships between abusers and the people that they victimize, usually that abuser has a whole bunch of advantages that Mm -hmm. your training might not overcome. Uh, I just wonder if it would lead to an escalation. Because then you you have the justification, don't you? So Ray Rice says, well, she spit on me, and then I got to knock her unconscious. What happens if you did a karate chop or whatever kind of thing you might have learned in your defense class? Oh, now that would probably justify killing her. Linda. Linda. And... If there is a call to the police department based on that, the, the uh, person who is defending themselves will also be arrested. Well, can I ask you this? Mm-hmm. Sure. In, in, in most cases, when the police do show up, if it, if it comes down to that, if you have to call 911 if it's that bad, uh, in many cases, the police officers are not all that readily equipped to handle that particular situation and that's another issue entirely and in fact bob i think that should be next week's topic (laughs) all right uh the 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 escalation of 
uh, you know, how how do you actually determine who's in the right and who's in the wrong when it comes to, you know, I, I would hate to be a police officer walking into a domestic dispute. I, I admire them for being able to do it. I don't know how they do it. Mm-hmm. But this, this is a situation where people do need to learn how to cowboy up and defend themselves. Because if you're in an abusive relationship, you need to get out of it. You need to get away, and no matter what it takes, there is nothing worth getting your life in jeopardy for. It, it, I mean, I, I mean, I know, I understand there there could be children involved or what have you, but no one deserves to be beaten up. Mm-hmm. Randy, thank, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for all that. And I, I know that Toby and Linda both uh, will respond to what you had to say. I have a. I, I, I can relate a personal experience to that, where I was. Um, we were in an altercation, and uh, he had me laying on a table and was choking me, and I got an opportunity to reach up and slap him. And he, you know, as much as that did, that didn't do much of anything, but it did escalate, and it was a very bad thing. He did this in front of my children. My children, my oldest son at the time, was about three years old. And when his dad said, oh, my gosh, I think I can't hear out of that ear where you slap me, my younger son was angry with me for a long time. Now, he'd just been choking me, but and that was okay, but I slapped his dad, and that was not okay. Um, and when I related this in an earlier panel discussion, the state police officer said, and you would have gone to jail. Now, this is, I mean, I know it, to come into those positions and not know who, who did what first, and um, but, you know, frankly, I had a black eye. And, and and some cuts to my face, and and he had maybe a red mark on his ear. And tell me who should be arrested. Uh, when they passed the legislation that made domestic violence illegal in the state of Indiana, they also included in it mandatory training for police officers. So you can't get out of the academy without a pretty extensive training mm-hmm. uh, in domestic violence, what it means, what the dynamic is, but also how to intervene effectively. And then they are required to get more training throughout the year once they are in place in a police department. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to minimize by any means, <laughs> what it means for a police officer to go to the scene of a domestic violence incident. But they, they are really prepared to do mm-hmm. that. They, mm-hmm. they learn a lot before mm-hmm. they ever have to go. Mm-hmm. Toby, I mean, to Randy's point about offering self-defense classes, it, it seems like it might be uh, something that would at least that might help self-esteem on the part of, of the women who are involved. But when it comes down to it, you know, is an altercation better than having no altercation? Well, one of the things that we always say is if it kept you alive, it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we if, if you froze, if you did nothing, if you whimpered quietly, you know, mm-hmm. if that kept you alive, that's okay. One of the things about most of these self-defense trainings is that they create scenarios Right. Mm -hmm. And I had this woman talking about how one of the scenarios puts an attacker between your legs and they create, you know, the scenario. This is what's happening for a bunch of women. 
if that is something that happened to you, there comes the PTSD. And so it can become a very scary thing just to take the class. Because what's your first reaction going to be? I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do anything. You know, I... I would be lost. I would be dead. And those aren't good things to think about. I would say in general, in fact, self-defense training usually leads to better posture (laughs) and a more purposeful stride, and it makes you less appear less vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And those are good things. So I don't think that's a bad discipline to learn. I want to change, switch gears just a little bit because we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I'm interested as... um, technology becomes more sophisticated, if abusers are becoming more sophisticated in their use of technology as it relates to um, their abuse of their victims. Toby, have you been experiencing something along those lines at Middleway House here? So I'm going to refer back a little bit to Bob Salzberg, who was invited to speak at our annual meeting one year. And like a good speaker, he prepared, he went online, and he looked at our website. And he talked at the first part of his speech about the fact that at the top of every page, it's said, do you need to cover your tracks? So tracking, stalking happens electronically now. And it is a very, very difficult thing to protect yourself from. And yes, they are getting more and more good at it through the computer, through the phone, uh, where you don't even know that mm-hmm. it's on your phone. And, you know, a lot of the, the people that we work with, they don't have that much sophistication. They have devices, but they don't mm-hmm. have much sophistication. I don't have much sophistication, <laughs> to tell you the truth, and I have devices, too. <laughs> um, fortunately, I don't have anybody who wants to hurt me or stalk me, so mm-hmm. um, I can afford to be ignorant. But generally speaking, I think that um, teaching people what we can about that's really important. And we do include it in our prevention programming in the schools. Mm-hmm. We'd have just a few minutes to go. And I want to I go back to the idea of, you know, the state, uh, the issue with the state money, it strikes me that deep down there might actually be, you know, somebody might think, well, it would be better if we could, if we could have these programs that catch these, these issues early. So it doesn't sound like it's a it's a hundred percent the wrong thing, but it, it kind of it kind of uh, plays off prevention, which is the maybe a long term answer versus helping people who are in trouble now. Am I reading that right? So yeah. instead of just trying to 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 pay two bills from one pot, we really need two pots for two That's different correct. bills. Yes, mm-hmm. I support that statement, Mary <laughs> Catherine. Yes. Well, I mean, it is. Yeah. It does have to be a, uh, at least a two-pronged approach, if mm-hmm. not more. I mean, mm-hmm. prevention and treatment. Right. And now, you know, when they talk about prevention, they're talking about essentially changing the world, really mm-hmm. and truly. Right. You know, they want to see the culture change. Well, let's and talk they about give you twelve thousand dollars. Oh, yeah. Well, let's <laughs> talk about that though. Do you feel that a, a situation like the Ray Rice situation is actually? In the long run, a positive thing because uh, it's it is um, encouraging discussion like we're having today, and the I would say at least from what I've seen, most of the reaction has been um, people have been horrified by that video, and so they've come out and said that's you know obviously very bad. I, certainly, there are, have been defenders, but what, what's I mean, what's your uh, big picture view on this as it relates to the future of of the culture change, if you will. I think it would be a teeny tiny, teeny tiny step forward because because the indication or is that once it comes 
out of the headlines, everybody prefers to put their head back in the mm-hmm. sand and pretend mm-hmm. it doesn't doesn't exist. So um, I, I really would like to see some some push to be able to not only have programs like this, but to have women who would ask for help and frankly, or, or men who ask for help who, who are experiencing these things or the abuser recognize it and saying i need a program mm-hmm. and be, and having having options to be able to get treatment mm-hmm. one minute toby i would just say persistence and consistency are hugely important nobody wants to give up privilege mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. most of us are deeply deeply conservative when it comes to cultural and social changes really because even if they aren't good for us we're kind of comfortable we figured out our accommodation so uh, i think that this has a silver lining you know, particularly if you're not Janae or Janae's children or, you know, people who are deeply, deeply hurt and humiliated, you know, mm-hmm. by all of the publicity. Um, but if it doesn't continue, it won't contribute to a real cultural change. Mm-hmm. All right. And we are out of time. I want to thank uh, Toby Strout, the executive director of Middleway House in Bloomington, and Linda Robbins, the Monroe County Clerk, for being here with us today. Thank for you. Thank you. our producer, Rachel, Rachel Morello, engineer Mike Pashkash, and my co-host, Mary Catherine Carmichael, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu.